from Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now what land is that this talking about? In this land of ours, we can hardly eat any good of the land. There are lots of things happen. We plant a garden only to be taken up by the critters. If it's not something eating them away, then the wild animals come and get them. There's no good of the land for us. There's lots of trouble and persecution, trials everywhere. We have the Syrian yoke on our neck. But the time is going to come that if we're willing and obedient, we shall eat the good of the land. Let us kneel in prayer now with Sister Tracy from this chart, but which is Daniel 2, which is about the stone that becomes a great image, a great mountain and fill the whole earth. But eh, could everyone see the chart? All right. Before I proceed, I want to go a little into the importance of having the prophetic gift among us. Now, let's do, well, if, it's better if you don't turn for some people. Some people could really concentrate more if you take the references down and then afterwards read. But those who want to turn, turn to your Bible, the First Corinthians, I think it's the third chapter. Just a minute. Yes, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. It says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of, of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God only. So now, we don't know what is in God's mind. No man knows. But it didn't say that the Holy Spirit doesn't know. Or it didn't say that God would not reveal to man what is in his mind. So just as though no one knows what is in my mind, no one knows what is in your mind, so we do not know what is in God's mind. So how do we know the mind of God pertaining to our own soul salvation? He's sending us to his word. But as I read to you last week, in 1 Corinthians, we're told that the Lord's many and God's many, 1 Corinthians 8. And everyone is preaching about this God and this Lord, and yet they all differ. They don't, they don't seem to be telling you, that's verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. They don't seem to be telling you that there is one God by the way they worship. Everyone has a different way of worshiping God. So if you were going to choose, you would know where to go. There are God's many, there's Lord's many. And then 1 Corinthians 14, and this is verse 10. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them are without signification. 
Or what does that mean to you? That all these many voices that are going on, they do have some significant point. If it's, if it's only about the, 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 um, cru the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, it's still a significant point. So every one of them have some significant point, but there are many, many voices. They don't agree, and it's all leading us in different paths. We want to go in the path of God. So we want to know what is in God's mind and how does he reveal it to us. So I'm now going to <clears throat> Second Peter. Second Peter, the first chapter, and this is from verse, I read verse 21 first. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you see, men had to have to be indicted by the Spirit of God to show us what is in his mind, otherwise we wouldn't know. And it says, holy men, and we call them prophets. And verses 19 and 20 say, We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So what do we have? What kind of prophecy we have? A more? Just think of those um, adjectives. Just We don't only have a sure word, but a more sure word. And how are we to take heed? As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And if you know what it means to be out in the dark with only a flashlight, you know that you had to follow the person or you, yourself. You have to keep in line with the light. Otherwise, where would you go? Why do you have a light if you're not going to walk in the rays of it? So the, um, the Lord is telling us here that prophecy is important and it doesn't come by the will of man, that God has to inspire holy men to tell us about these prophecies. Now, last week we studied that God has a church on earth, and there is one um, a, a, a important point to distinguish that church from all the many churches of the world. And that church is, according to Revelation 19, verse 10, that's the church that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, there are many, many churches that keep, say they keep the commandments, because you will realize and you know too that <clears throat> there is not only one church that keeps the Sabbath or one denomination. There are many other Sabbath keepers and there are countless Sunday keepers. So actually there are two groups of people in this world, Sabbath keepers, Sunday keepers, though they have different little systems. But <clears throat> we're talking here about the true church of God, the end times, the, the, the remnant that is left, and you know what the remnant is. So this is the Seventh-day Adventist church beyond the shadow of a doubt. It keeps the commandments of God, and it has the testimony of Jesus. So now, because it's a true church, where do we go from here? 
What does the Lord want us to know about that true church? Does he want us to get up and leave that church because we don't like certain things? Does he want us to remain in the church until he supernaturally takes us out? You would say the latter, wouldn't you? Because we're still all members of the church as far as we're concerned. Whatever they do, they're doing to their own satisfaction, not according to the books of heaven. Now, we go on a little further to show how important prophecy or the prophets are to the church. And this church, Seventh-day Adventist Church, was founded on a prophet, the prophetic gift. It wasn't somebody that grew disappointed with the present state and they just went out and started a new church. It wasn't like that. God chose a young girl at the age of 17 and inspired her with the gift of prophecy. And this, this marks the difference between us as Seventh-day Adventists and the world. The other churches, not that the other churches don't have good people in them too. We'll see what will happen as we proceed in the, in the study. Now, long ago, in Second Chronicles, I'm going to read what my friend Jehosh Jehoshaphat said. The reason I call him my friend is that I like him, but I don't like his vacillating nature, and that's a nature that we all should shun. So before I read what he says in Second Chronicles 20, verse 20, you could write that down. I'm going to tell you briefly an outline of what happened in ancient Israel to Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah, and Ahab, king of Israel. Now, Judah was following in the right way, while Ahab, as everybody knows, is a wicked king. And who was Ahab's wife? Jezebel. And whenever you see a bad woman that's behaving bad, you want to call her Jezebel. That name is left for a curse. So the Lord instructed Jehoshaphat to keep away from Ahab, but he couldn't do it. His, he was so vacillating, so changeable, and he decided one day, you know, I'm going to go visit Ahab. And Ahab was happy. So we would say today he, he threw a party for, <coughs> for Jehoshaphat. He killed sheep and had a big feast time. And he was planning his own work to approach Jehoshaphat, which Jehoshaphat didn't know. So he said, and when they were finished with their feasting, he said, Jehoshaphat, how would you like to go up with me to Ramoth Gilead? This is Syria. Fight with me. Would you do that? Would you join with me? And Jehoshaphat, just the way he didn't say he'd think about it, nothing. He said, oh, yes, my people are your people. Whatever you say, we will do. But then he was troubled. So he said, is there a prophet among us who can come and tell us what is, you know, if it's right or wrong? He said, yes. So he called 400 prophets, and they came. And they all prophesied, yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead. The Lord is going to give you the victory. And one of them, he even made two horns. And so you see these horns, just like these iron horns, you are going to go up king and demolish Ramoth Gilead. They wouldn't be there. Well, Jehoshaphat wasn't happy with them, the way they were carrying on. He could tell they weren't true prophets. So he said, is there any a prophet yet who can come? And Ahab said, oh, no, what's the use? 
there is one, but he never says anything good <laughs> to me and about me. Why should I call him? And Jehoshaphat said, yes, you call him. I'd like to hear what he has to say. So he, they sent to fetch him. And the person who went to get him said, now his name was Micaiah. He said, Micaiah, when you go, you be sure to say everything like those 400 prophets. Otherwise, your life would be at stake. So he said, well, I'm sorry. I, I can only say what God tells me. So now he went. And as he went, the king asked him, should we go up to him at Gilead? Would we win the battle? And he said, oh, yes. He just truly said, yeah, yeah, go up. You're going to win. Sure. But the way he was talking, it did not impress Jehoshaphat that he was telling the truth and that he was talking from his heart. So the king, even the king, Ahab, so he said, how many times did I adjure you to tell me the truth? So go ahead and tell me the truth. And then he went ahead and told Jehoshaphat what would happen. He said he saw all Israel scattered as sheep without a shepherd. Ahab was a shepherd. And if they were scattered without a shepherd, you know what would happen to Ahab. And then he went on to show that the Lord was sending a lying spirit to convince him to go, and it wasn't God that was telling him to go to fight against Weymouth Gilead. Well, Ahab was furious. He said, didn't I tell you this fellow never tell me anything right? So he said he commanded the people to take him. And before that, this other one that made the iron horn, he came up and slapped Jehoshaphat on his face. And he said, which way did the Spirit of God lead me and go to you? Micaiah. He's, what did I say? No, no. <laughs> Sorry. He slapped Micaiah. Anyway, this, he, the Ahab told his people, go and put him, tell this man to put him in prison, put him in solitary confinement, as we would say, and feed him with the bread of adversity till I get back. And Micaiah said, if you get back, then the Lord hasn't spoken to me. So he went to war. And you know what he told Jehoshaphat, who was so weak? He said, Jehoshaphat, this is Ahab. Jehoshaphat, you dress like the king, and I'll dress like an ordinary man. And let's go out to battle. And what did Jehoshaphat say? Oh, sure, he was always ready. And the reason I liked, I sometimes wonder why I like Jehoshaphat. But I, I do, he had a mind to serve the Lord, but he was just weak. So anyway, he's the one that dressed like the king. So the king of Syria told his soldiers, look, when you go out, don't try to get any of the other people. Aim for Jehoshaphat, for Ahab. Whoever, just go out to get Ahab and get him. So when they went, they saw this child with this king, and they thought that was Ahab. And they were going to get him. And Ahab cried out. I would imagine he would say, I'm not Ahab. <laughs> but it just said that he cried out and he cried to the Lord and the Lord heard his prayer and they left him alone and they went after Ahab. They got Ahab and the arrows went through him. But he stayed with the battle until the close of the day, then he died. So did you see how Micaiah's prophecy came to pass? You see that no man knows the things of God except God himself and except God revealed it through his servant, the prophet. Not Jehoshaphat went back. And in the end, you would think that he didn't follow bad company, like going back to Ahab or to Israel. 
but he was there and he had certain reforms instituted, but he never did take down the high places, but he did what he could. And he thought he was doing all right, and all of a sudden it was reported that the Ammonites and the Moabites were coming to war against him. And he said, well, we haven't done anything to these people. Why would they come? We're living peacefully. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Lord, you know, when we were coming through the wilderness, you told us not to trouble the Ammonites and the Moabites, and we didn't. And there were the, who, who, who was Ammon and Moab, you remember? Lord's children, right? So they, they were related to him, but they came up. But before that, Jehoshaphat prayed, and he had all the people pray, and they were really worried, concerned that these people would come against him. But a prophet came to him and told him, don't worry, Jehoshaphat. Everything will be all right. You will see God will, he will brought a miracle. A miracle will be wrought for you folks, and nothing would happen for all of us. So then he called the people into the wilderness that day after he was told, and reading Second Chronicles 20, verse 20, and they rose up early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. <coughs> Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. So they believed the prophets, and they went out to meet these people. And you know, they went out with great staves and arrows and chariots, right? Wrong. They went out singing, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And they just sang and sang. When these warriors heard them, the Lord says he was sending ambushments and scared them. And they were so scared and they didn't know. They, they were confused. And by that time, they had Seir join them. And they joined and they destroyed Seir completely, the Moab and Ammon, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And then when they were finished, they didn't know what they were doing. They were confused. And God caused help, did that. And next, you know, was that they turned on each other. The Moabites and Ammonites, they killed as a great, great slaughter. And they, that was a deliverance. This is why Jehoshaphat told them to believe his prophet. It was a prophet that came and told them that the victory will be theirs. They didn't have to do anything. And so... The Lord now is telling us that he doesn't do anything without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophet. Let's turn to Hosea 12, or 12, verse 3. I think some of you know that text by heart. It says here, it's not verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 13. And by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. So you could see how important the prophetic gift is for God's people. And then all of you know Amos 3, verse 7. Could we repeat it together? By Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophet. So today we are going to study this chapter of Daniel 2, which remained a secret with God. The church has an explanation to a point, but that explanation is false. It's not right, as we shall see. 
and to recap briefly for those who may like to hear the story again, Nebuchadnezzar was sleeping one night and he had a dream. And he couldn't, the dream troubled him when he woke in the morning. He said, he didn't know what the dream was, but he was greatly troubled. So he said, I have to find out what this dream is. So he called for all his wise men, all the magicians, astrologers, whoever he could find, to come and give him the dream with the interpretation. And that's next to an impossibility. That's what they said. No man could do that, O king, save the God that doesn't have flesh. Of course, they must. They, uh, they might have known, or they were referring to God, whether they believe it or not, the true and living God. So he said, just tell us your dream. Whatever it is, we'll give the interpretation. Well, of course, anybody can can um, come up with some kind of bogus interpretation, but they couldn't. So the king was very upset. He said, these people are charlatans. They are not true. They are deceivers. So he put a decree that all the, the wise men should be killed. And Daniel and his two companions, they were included in the wise men. So they were going to kill him. And when Daniel heard, he begged for mercy and he begged for time. He said, don't be, you know, give me time, give us a time. So he went and told his two companions and they began to pray that the Lord would give them a chance so that he would, God would reveal this, this dream and the secrets to Daniel. And God did just that because that was the secret and that dream, it wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar, you know. Listen to what Daniel 2, and then before I go on to explain it, Daniel 2, verse 28. It says, There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. So I want to impress that upon our minds. This dream was given to Daniel, to Nebuchadnezzar, and interpreted by Daniel through the God of heaven wisdom and understanding for us in the last days. So he went and he told the king, he said, thou, thou sawest a great image, O king. And the king, right away, the king's mind was percolating and he was saying, well, that's true, I did see an image. And he said, the head of gold and so on, but I'll just condense it. He said, this head of gold, thou art the head of gold. And he said, this, this part, the chest and the arms, of silver, that's me, the Persia, that the kingdom inferior to your kingdom will come up. It won't be as gold, but it'll be inferior. This is me, the Persia. And then it says next, there would be another kingdom. This is what Daniel was telling him. And this kingdom would be a brass. And the, all the time you could see it's losing its value and its, you know, its worth. So from gold to brass. So that is the third kingdom, though brass is a very strong metal. So you come down now to the legs of iron, and he said, this is Rome. And Rome, we are told, ruled the world with an iron hand. So this was the fourth great empire in those days. Then it didn't end there. He said that it had toes, and the toes were part of iron and part of clay. So those represent kingdoms too, and that's the present world. Well, why part iron and part clay? Anybody? 
some of the nations, these smaller nations in the world today, for we are not in any of these kingdoms here. We are on the toes. In fact, we are on the tiptoes. Great and solemn events are about to take place. So these kingdoms of the world today, these nations of the world today, they're not all of iron. Some are weak and some are strong. Some are stronger than some. So Nebuchadnezzar was looking at this. And then Daniel began to tell him. And I would like to read what Daniel said in verse 34. After he was looking at that image, Nebuchadnezzar was looking at that image, Daniel said, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. So you see where we where we are at, or the places we are at at this time, that we are here where Daniel saw that the stone was cut out without hands. And if the stone was cut out without hands, what kind of an act do you call that? Supernatural, it's not a natural act. Now, did it say where the stone was cut out? Did I read in verse 34 from where the stone was cut out? No. So we have to know because somebody come and tell it cut out from come down from the sky or somewhere. But here here's what verse forty five says. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. So where was the stone cut out of? There is a mountain brought to view. And where is this mountain? The mountain had to be right where, where the image was. It wasn't in heaven. And the mountain had to represent some something. The mountain stand for something. In our group this morning, we studied from Michael 4, 1, at least we, we read that, and we found out what the mountain represents. I'll read now from Joel, the third chapter, and I'm going to read the 17th verse. So we're reading what the mountain represents. What does God say? A mountain in prophecy. This is a prophecy, see? It was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's for us in these days. And because it's for us, we should prick our ears up and be intensely interested in it so we can know what the present truth lesson is for us even at this moment. So he said, verse 17, So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. So Zion, a figure of God's church, is represented by a mountain. I'm going over now to Isaiah, the 56th chapter, and I'm reading from verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. I didn't get all my little markers. Eh? And when you get in the study, be sure you have your markers in because... It'll save time. All right. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. So what is the house of prayer? God's church. So you see, a mountain represents God's church. Now, this is showing the world government in this image. And this mountain represents God's church throughout all ages. You couldn't have a prophecy that pertained to the world, and it's only talking about the government of the world. 
is you have to see God's church in there somewhere. So this mountain represents God's church in every age. And we're coming to the time now when God says he will reach in there and take out this stone and with his own, well, supernaturally, he'll cut out the stone from this mountain. Now, let's turn to Micah, the fourth chapter, as another scripture concerning this mountain and what it means, so we can better identify the mountain, you know, so we would know which church, this is God's church, as I'm saying, but there must be some identifying mark for us to prove which is God's church that he calls his mountain. Micah, the fourth chapter, verses 1 and 2. But in the last days, again, a prophecy for the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord, what is the house of the Lord? God's church shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we shall walk in his path. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So now it identifies which church it is. How, what does it say here? What will go out from Zion? The law. This is going to be a church that is keeping the Ten Commandments of God that God gave them. But this is going to be a purified church, not the church that we know it today, enfeebled and defective, as Sister White says. But yet it is the object of God's supreme regard on this earth. So he's doing all everything he knows to take, to take care or to take charge of that church. So now we come to the point where God supernaturally goes in and he takes out this stone. Now, what time does he do it? Does Daniel explain a little further in the prophecy what time that is known as? So I'm going back to Daniel, the second chapter, and I'm going to read verse 35. When the iron smote the image on its feet, not on the head, so here is where we are, the, the present world. And it says, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, and the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer's threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. So if this is time when the chaff is being blown away, uh, is it the plant, planting of the wheat or the harvesting? It's a harvest, right? That's the time we were passing through Canada once when the harvesting of the wheat was going on. And you should see the shafts in the air just blowing everywhere. So this is harvest time. God is going to reach into the church, into his church, and he's going to take out this. Now, what part is a stone to a mountain? What would you call that? A great part? What part? A small part, right? A remnant. So God has a remnant people. It's a stone people, if you please. That is, they have the stone character 
characteristic of a stone. Nothing can turn them back. They made up their minds that they're going to go all the way with the Lord. Disappointment, trials, hardships, whatever it might be, nothing will turn them back. As the song says, we've gone too far to turn back. So this is the stone keeper here. And it's going to be done, taken out by God himself in the time of the harvest. And now the last part of verse 35, it says the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this church here, we weren't told that it filled the whole earth because this is God's church in every dispensation. But this mountain, this stone here, when it becomes a great mountain, it will fill the whole earth. No one will have any question as to which church in the world is teaching the truth. God will have a purified people, a people that he has changed, a people that is a renovated race, a reformed people, a people that's living up to all his requirements. And I'll tell you something, it's not going to be a split-second event either. These people will not be found at the split seconds of a time. They are developing that character right now. And if they are not putting into their lives what they should be, they cannot expect to be among the stone people. Now, when he reaches in and gets this, these people, he himself, supernaturally, they're not leaving. They cannot be taken out of the church by human beings. God is going to do it, and he will reach in there and get them. And then it says in verse 44, well, I'll read the, the rest of verse 45 first. Read the beginning. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. So where you sit here and believe it, whether some of you have heard this before, and think, oh, I've heard it before, whatever you have heard, be sure to know this afternoon that this dream is certain and that we are not too far from the time when God is going to reach in and get the stone people out of his church. The question uppermost in our mind should be, are we developing that stone character? And I'll read a few texts to show what the stone character is. But now, after he gets it, the stone become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. That is, other people, a great multitude of people will come out from the other churches. So we don't get too proud and lifted up and say we are the ch church of God. That's Seventh-day Adventists, we are. But the church is in trouble. And God has to do something with it. So he sent a message of revival and reformation that they would repent and return to him. And not the whole church would do it. It says um, in volume 5, <coughs> volume 5, page 136. It's quoted here. Rather than bring all those books, I'm going to read it here. I guess I did mark it, but I could find it. I could even, I could quote it, and some of you know it by heart. It says, the very atmosphere is polluted by sin. Soon God's people will be tested by fiery trials, and the great proportion of those who, 
appear to be genuine and true will prove to be base metal. Now what is base metal? Is that gold? Is that good metal? It's not good metal. The great proportion, and you could tell from here, this, which is the great proportion? Is this the great proportion? These people are hated, persecuted, pushed out of the church, wasn't given an opportunity to do anything. You can't say a word. And if you do say a word, they want to throw you out and have the law on you. They do everything, the same persecution, the same spirit of religious intolerance that was in the days of Luther and prior to his time is the same spirit that is in God's church. So God has to do something, and he will do that something. He's going to level off this church, and that you'll find in volume. This is what the test, Sister White herself wrote, volume 1, page 190, and it says here, I saw that the Lord was wetting his sword in heaven to cut them down. Oh, that every lukewarm professor could realize the clean work that God is about to make among his professed people. So today when they throw us out of the church, they say they're getting rid of the tears. But that's not a clean work. So many tears are there. How do they know that we are the tears? The Lord said, let the wheat and the tears grow together until the harvest. And they're, they're, they're going ahead of God. And they don't know who are the tares and who are the wheat. Because even the Bible says the tares look so much like the wheat. So you have to be careful. And the tares are the embodiment of error. And they can't prove that that's what we have. They cannot prove it. And they do not even try. All they say, this is error, this is false, this is not according to the fundamentals of the faith, their faith. So now, God is about to level out this church. And he's going to take the stone people and exalt them. And this is what verse 44 says. And in the days of these kings, going back to Daniel 2, verse 44, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So when God takes his people, and he has a location for them, as we read um, in, in Micah 4, where is he going to place them? Is he going to bring them here next to the Missouri, this nice quiet place? No, where? Jerusalem. The location of the place is given. That will be God's kingdom church, the headquarters of his work, if you please. And he's going to bring all his people from all the other churches, all the honest people. There are so many. It's a great multitude. This is only a little remnant. That's where, that's how where all he'll get from the Adventist church. And after he gets them, he goes out. They go out and they get a whole set of, a multitude of people. This is why this stone become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The knowledge of God will be everywhere. There is no person, no matter where you live, you are going to have the knowledge of the true and living God and the right way to serve him. When God brings these stone people to life, he establishes a kingdom. It says after these kingdoms are destroyed, he will establish a kingdom, true or false? Huh? It says, in the days of these kings, that was a false statement, not after. In the days of these kings. If you say you came to America in the days of President Bush, when did you come? While he's the president. 
<laughs> I came to America in the days of Eisenhower. That's, he, he was the president, but not anymore today. So now these things are alive. When God sets up his kingdom, nations will come to the knowledge of God because of the true and righteous people that God will have. Now I'll read a little bit about them, um, the description of these people. They, he said he's going to use them like a battle axe. That's how he's going to use those stone people. And that's from Jeremiah 51, from verses 19. I would guess I'll read up to 23. But Jeremiah 21, 19 through 20, I mean 51, 19 through 23. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts is his name. Do you like an inheritance? Somebody told me, well, we don't have any relatives in America, so we don't get, we, we, we never hope to have an inheritance. Now God is, has, has an inheritance. Israel, his true people, is the rod, which is the word of God. The word is dwelling in them and through them. Now if we want to inherit and to claim that inheritance, we have to show who we are. You see, you can't go to the bank and say, uh, my aunt died and left me so and so much money. If you cannot prove who you are, you have to show proof who you are. So now we have the proof. Israel, God's true people, is the rod of his inheritance. And then it goes on to say, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Just think of the power these people will have. People want power, and they want to be different. God is giving to true power now. And with thee will I break in pieces the horse and his chariot and his rider. And with thee will I break in pieces the chariot and his rider. With thee also will I break in pieces man and woman. And with thee will I break in pieces old and young. And with thee will I break in pieces the young man and the maid. I will also break in pieces with thee the shepherd and his flock. And with thee I will break in pieces the husbandman and his yoke of oxen. And with thee will I break in pieces captains and rulers. This is what God will do with these people. Nothing shall escape them, nothing. Every honest soul will come to knowledge of God. And they will really represent him in the right way. Now I'm going to Joel, the second chapter. Joel 2, and I'm going to read from verse verse 1. Verse 1, and I'll stop somewhere along the line. I guess I could go to 11 if I have time. Blow the trumpet in Zion. In ancient time, when they blew the trumpet, what were they doing? It was a warning. So God is telling us to go to God's church and let them know what is going to happen. This is why we are here at Bacon Hill. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. This is the headquarters of the work of purification that we go to the church with this message. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. It's not a peace and safety. If an alarm is sounded now, you know what will happen. We'll all be up and doing. Want to know what it's about. Let all tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Now, I said, Paul was hearing that since I was born, if you were born in this message. If you're about 50 years old, you're hearing it that long. 60 years. 
But I think you have a long stretch of tomorrow. It isn't so. One day it's coming to an end closer and closer as it was, as it was in the days of Noah. At the, when that day comes, it's going to be a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there has not been ever the light, neither shall be any more after it. Do you see the kind of people we are striving to be? Like now you're going to college, some of you, a few of you, and you're studying to be this and that, you just can't say, well, I'm going to, I would like to, to be a counselor, for instance. And then you don't do anything. You don't go to school or you don't do anything. You just stay. Perhaps work in a little grocery store, a big chain mart or something. And you think you are going to achieve that goal. That's not so. So with all of us now, it's just like we're in this little store. When God has a great plan for us, that we'll be a great people and a strong, there won't be anybody like her. Right now, who are we? Nobody knows us. But when God gets into us, he changes our bloodstream. He changes everything. And we don't have any, any desire to do wrong anymore. It will be harder for us to sin in those days than to keep from sinning now. So now it says, verse 3, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horse. See how the land ahead will be. Eden restored, just like the Garden of Eden was. It says the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. And those who like horses and know how they run can appreciate, will appreciate this more. For this is the way God's people will be. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, of, of flame, of fire that devoureth the stubble. As, as a strong people set in battle array, before their face the people shall be much pain. Those are the wicked people. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march, and every one in his own way. They shall march, every one on his ways, and they shall not break ranks. These people know how to take order. When they're going one way, this one is the north. That's not for me. I'm doing something else. If you're training to be this type of people, you, you have to know how to keep yourself from breaking ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. That means somebody come right up to you and point the gun at you and fire and you will die. You will be invulnerable to death. That's a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful thing. It's a complete revolutionary thought in theology because nobody ever teaches these things. Now going on. It says, Neither shall one trust another. 
You see, no fighting, no interference. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heaven shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before the army, for the his camp is very great, for he is strong that executed his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Okay, that's good, Sister Bingham, for you to read all that, but we don't know when that is. So give us a chance to enjoy a piece of the word, and then we'll come in. How do you know if you will live? Did you remember? You know very well what happened to the people in 9-11 and all, all around us. They leave work in the morning, didn't know they would never get back. And that's a whole group of people, and this is happening all the time. Now, I turn to just one more text. I'm reading from Zechariah, the 12th chapter, verses 2 and 3. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, to all the people round about. When we wouldn't have to have great artillery, we wouldn't have to have any physical protection on Jerusalem at that time. What you're hearing now is going to pass, come to pass. I could read another text to you from Ezekiel, where it says, and yeah, Ezekiel, where it says, if this is marvelous in your eyes, should it also be marvelous in my eyes? It's not. It's going to come to pass. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And now here's this promise. You never heard this before. We never did till we heard this message. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. That's the spot there. It's the hot spot of the world. People are against it right now. They think that those unbelieving Jews shouldn't be there. But when God takes back a people, their physiognomy, nothing looks like Jews. And they are there. Well, what are the, what are the other people, the nations, the Arabs, and all of those people, the Jews themselves? They want that country that belongs to them. And so all nations are going to be gathered against Jerusalem. And verse 12, pardon me, verse 8, this is the one I'm saying we, we never paid attention to. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You don't have to sit down there trembling in your boots wondering what will happen. God will defend us. Did I just read from Second Chronicles 20 how God discomfited the enemy and he gave his people the victory? He did it more than once. And if he did it and we have the example, you know, they didn't have the example of anybody. That's the first time it was happening. We have the example today. Why should we doubt? We're told to doubt is the greatest offense we can commit. Now, we may not openly doubt, 
but we might say we have a long stretch of tomorrow before that happens. Oh, yes, it will happen, but not right now. Give me a little chance to enjoy the word. Now it says, In that day shall the Lord defend inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. So these people are going to be as God that he puts in Jerusalem. And that's you and me. We'll have that God-like characteristic just like God. If you are like God, you're going to be like God right now. You know, no, you're going not hard-hearted, not unkind, not rude, not boisterous. You're going to be like God right now, kind, helpful, cheerful, and happy, and so on. You know all the characteristics. So now, what is the Lord telling us? How are we going to get there? I only have a few minutes more, so I'm going to read these few texts, two texts, and then one passage. And I'm reading now from, as you always remember, my husband, he'll say, and now I'm coming to the closing text. And the boys would be ready for the closing text, and it takes a half hour because he's really reading the closing text. But, all right, this is Zephaniah, the third chapter, and I'm reading from verse 11. In that day thou shalt not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty, because of my holy mountain. So she was whom God is going to take away. In that day, whenever you hear those words, in that day, it's talking about judgment on the house of God. And this is the time God is living down this church. We won't be haughty because of that church. The people look at us haughtily, that we are the people of God. And the others all outsiders. They're nothing in the sight of some are Seventh-day Adventists. I wouldn't say of all now. I don't know. But it used to be that way. Thou shalt no more be haughty because of the, because of my mountain. And it says, in that day, you know, we won't be ashamed. Now going on to the next verse. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. They have nothing to trust in, not even church membership. I valued my church membership. I think the worst thing that could have happened to me was when they disfellowshipped me. But then I was comforted. I read, I had just come into the message. If I had known it long enough, it wasn't <laughs> going to bother me. I'd just known it one month when they cast me out. So... The Lord is saying he will leave in the midst of the church and afflicted and poor people because they have the stone, stone character. And now it says, the remnant of Israel, here's the remnant, shall not do iniquity, neither shall nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So this is what God is going to do for us. But we have to come to this standard, no deceit, no prevaricating. To prevaricate is to, to answer, mm-hmm, and you really don't mean mm-hmm at all. What does mm-hmm mean? You know, you prevaricate, you're not telling the truth. 
and Revelation 14, and we all know that. And that's verse 5, that's describing this group of people. Revelation 14, verse 5, and it says here, talking about these same people, and in their mouths was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So the guile, you know, is deceit in its every form. So we have to speak the truth, because the truth is in us. Remember last week I read, Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, because only truthful people will be there, and people who believe the whole truth. Now in conclusion, let me read to you from from the timely greetings, the one who brought this message, Brother Haldar, what it tells us we should do. Now what is our greatest trouble? Why are we so perplexed and worried when we really have no right to be in such a condition? It says here, the time has 1 TG 27, verse 10. 1 TG 27, page 10, paragraph 2. The time has come, brother, sister, to forget self and to be honest with all men, to realize that self, as it were, the body of a dead man tied to one's back to sap one's strength and to put him sick in bed. You see, you see who is our greatest enemy? People tell each other, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. It wasn't for anybody, it's for yourself. You, through yourself, you're doing things that are wrong. And because you are unkind and, un, and so on to me, doesn't give me license to run into myself and to be self have self as a dead body on my back. So whoever is kind, whoever is loving, whoever is respectful, whoever cares for us, whoever helps us to carry our load in whatever way, that's that's all right. We shouldn't expect people to do those things for us anyway. And now the last one is 1TG1, not 1TG9, page 4. Many of you have heard these over more than once. 1TG9, 4. Just a minute. The siege will not be made only by nations adjacent to Jerusalem. That's, that's verse 3 that I read. But by all people of the earth. A thing that is made only possible, that is made possible only by the communication lines in our day. Thus will Jerusalem be a burdensome stone to all the people round about, and in endeavor to combat their fear, they might burden themselves by beseeching the city. For this evil work, they shall be cut in pieces. And this was page four. And then page five, it says, it matters not what we think. God is to have a strong, faithful people, the very kind here described. And Jerusalem is to be inhabited by a holy people, not a sinner among them. Since that typical prophet Elijah, who appears just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, just before the judgment day for the living, finds the church overrun by the devil, as badly as was the Jewish church in Christ's day, and as the saints, the first fruits, are to be rescued one by one, he at first sends fishers to fish them out, and afterwards hunters to hunt them out. Thus he gathers them one by one, and so it is today. They are fished by the free literature, and are now hunted by men right to their houses, 
be they in city, village, or countryside. So this is happening. I didn't intend to read it. I just found that. So the one I want to read, I'll finish close with that, and that's page 14. When God begins to destroy the nations, he will pour upon his saints the spirit of grace. And if you look around at the nations today and see all that is happening, you could see it's the beginning of it. Then will they really mourn for sinning against the Lord. And listen to this part. It is because men do not now have the spirit that their personal feelings are so easily hurt by any little thing done against them. And since the spirit of grace causes one to mourn, not for self, it is understandable that to pity oneself and to be hurt for self is, is what odd, no, let me read that. And since the spirit of grace causes one to mourn, not for self, it is understandable that to pity oneself and to be hurt over what others do or say against him is a sure sign that rather than being imbued with the spirit of grace, he is imbued by the spirit of devil, of the devil, who is daily seeking to discourage and dishearten himself. Remember that self-pity is outright defeat. None of us has ever been abused, as was the Lord, and yet self in him never was hurt. This is 1TG9. Page 14 is the last one I read. So if we are developing ourselves and we want to be with those stone people, these, these few lines that I read in the last, at last, this is what we practice, this is what we'll do, and we'll go all the way with the Savior, no matter what happens. You know what? There's a God in heaven that provides. When I became a, a Davidian and I accepted this message, I was working with the conference, and I was the support of my parents. I had, they had nothing. They were depending on whatever I could get, give them. And do you know that they never suffered? In fact, my mother began to get money that she, you know, they all, all the children had grown and everybody was helping, never suffered. I didn't know what the future held for me after they disfellowshipped me and let me go from the job. But the Lord had a future for me which I did not know. And for sure he has a future for each one. If he cares for those naughty sparrows that come and take away the bird houses from the other birds, and he still cares for them, they, don't you think he will care for you? How much more of value, the Bible says, are ye than of the little birds of the air and of the lilies of the field? So let's plan to obey God and let's plan to go all the way with our Savior. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. You can find us online at www.bashanhill.org and you can call us at 417-835-2162.